0: Well, here we are taking a look at the Day of Atonement, and for some of you, this might be a bit of a refresher. And for those who've been around the around the calendar many times before, this is a reminder of things that have been, and also perhaps places to look deeper. Now, for a Some of the key lessons that we have from this particular day is that as we're about to celebrate with the festival of Sukkot or tabernacles, the creator of heaven and earth wants to dwell in the midst of his people. In fact, that's what part of the instructions were for the commissioning of the Mishkan or the tabernacle was that this was going to be the dwelling place of God with with mankind. And that there has been a gulf between the time of Eden, a gulf between where God's presence is and where humanity is. And God has been trying to close that gulf up ever since to have the dwelling place of God amongst mankind yet again. And healing that separation that came in with our first parents of humanity, Adam and Eve, that they had gone down a different course, so the Lord is now looking to heal that. And the Lord started bridging that gulf with Abraham, called him out, somebody who would listen amongst all the nations. And you see this winnowing down through the families, through Genesis. And you see that first you have the family of Seth. And then you, and it goes down further, and then you've got the family of Noah. And then finally, further down, the family of Shem. And down through the family of Shem, you've got the call out to Avraham. And then when he is called out, A key aspect of his calling and his response was his trust. We call that faith, call that belief, that is action. He heard the call and he responded. He responded to the call. Amongst all the other deities that were competing for attention at that particular time period, he heard the Lord's calling and he responded. And Israel's sanctuary and the work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement is really a show, a demonstration of how heaven is bridging this chasm between God and humanity and how that chasm is being healed and brought back together. And you see that brought into John chapter 1, where in verse 14 he says, You know, and the word became flesh and tabernacled tabernacled amongst mankind so thus you have the the breach is being is being fixed and being brought back together again and another lesson of yom kippur is that we see the lesson that we see in leviticus 16 where it starts out with that lesson for aharon hey Don't stroll into the Holy of Holies anytime you want. No, don't stroll in anytime you want. You've got an invitation once a year to go in. Because you are the high priest, but even you cannot go into where the presence of the Lord is except for once a year. And we thus have a lesson as it comes out, and we just read about it here in Hebrews 9 and 10 that we can then now through this word made flesh that is tabernacle amongst us, we can go boldly with confidence into the presence of God, not out of arrogance or uh, how fantastic we are about our situation and our standing. No, but it is because of the, the reputation of yeshua of the messiah that is what makes us be able to go in with confidence and we go in as a new creation we are made new we are made different from who we were going toward the tabernacle remember when we were going through and we started in through the book of leviticus and the key lesson in that is that you have to be transformed if you want to go toward the presence of God, you must be transformed. But like it talks about there in Hebrews 9 and 10 that the blood is what is going to go or go towards the presence of God. So thus we become transformed there at the altar and head in towards the presence of God. And Yom Kippur is also the anniversary of this covering work. And as we've talked about with at the time of Passover, that there are a whole lot of parallels, both in the themes and also the appointment dates in the first month of Israel's calendar and the seventh month of Israel's calendar, which we are now. Here we are at the 10th month of the seventh month uh, the tenth day of the seventh month of Israel's calendar. So we are here at this particular point, but if you look at the bookend of it, at the front part of the year, you see some other very interesting patterns. First month, then you have the 10th day of the first month, which is what? Selection of the lamb. Selection of the lamb on the first Month, 10th day. So what is the 10th day of the 7th month all about? Selection of goats. Huh. Selection of goats. One of which was to its blood to cover. The other goat was to do what? Remove. To take away. And what did the herald Yohanan call him john the baptist what did he say about yeshua to his students to his disciples what did he say behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world so thus you've got a blending of two appointments passover and atonement together because the passover lamb doesn't take away it blocks because remember the first passover That whole job of the Passover lamb was to block the destroyer, block the destroyer who the Lord sent upon the firstborn. But there at the day of atonement, the goat of removal does what? Takes away the iniquities, transgressions, and sins, and takes them, bears them out, outside of the camp, away from us, so thus you have a great anniversary of what it is that the Messiah was doing, and of the continued healing of this rift here, in rift between heaven and earth. So when we look at this particular thing of Yom Kippur, we, we just talked about what is being covered, the three things that are being covered, the Chathat, or the sin, which is variously translated as covering or um, missing a mark, unintentional mistakes. I guess you could say you're um, oopsie. And also then the pasha, or the transgression. This is more willful, willful disobedience. You know what you should be doing, and you just... Don't do it. You decide to take something else, or as the Apostle Paul puts it, you're dragged away and enticed to do something else. And then you have a and a is what's translated as iniquity or you know rebellion. You're in, you are really acting against heaven at that particular point. You know the good, you don't do it. And boy, are you even fighting the one who tells you to do it. So then, when we look at this, what the congregation is doing, what is the congregation in the midst of the Day of Atonement? We read about that back in Leviticus 16. This is a Shabbat, Shabbaton, a stop, 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 complete stop. That's what Shabbat Shabbaton is communicating. As uh, as we've mentioned before, in Hebrew, when the, their way of linguistically uh, bold facing or underlining something is to have the word twice with a various form, and this is that form that it has in it. So, One of the things that they are doing, and not only stopping, but the instruction that comes in Leviticus 16 is to humble your souls. And the word there for humble is anah. And the root verb of that word anah in Hebrew is to reply or answer. So your reply or your answer is to do what? You're in your stopping, in your complete stop, your answer to heaven, in your reply and your question. Now, as it goes on further, we say that this word is also in talking about that when you annoy yourself or humble yourself, it's used elsewhere like in Ezra 821 or Isaiah fifty-three. 58.3 58.3 and 5 and Daniel 10.12, this afflicting of the soul is used in the context of fasting. That's where we get this idea of this is the fast, as Paul calls it. It is the fast of the calendar, no matter what other types of fasts you might have either by tradition or by your own spiritual regimen of connecting with God. This is the fast, which is a part of the stop. Stop what you're doing. So stop what you're doing. Humble yourself. Bring your body under control here through fasting and pay attention to what is actually going on here. And we read about that when we were going through Isaiah 57 and 58. Because uh, Isaiah is, uh, uh, is quite an interesting prophet because it starts out with what you might say a lot of, um, you might call them like Isaiah's antitheses, like what you see in the Sermon on the Mount, You'll see theologians will talk about the six antitheses or um, anti-statements. And in the Sermon on the Mount, they're usually in the form of, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. Well, in Isaiah, you get these, these points where it seems like he is saying, well, you've heard what God said. Well, don't do that anymore. And people, if with a casual reading, where they just you know parachute into Isaiah with a concordance, and you don't see the full context of it of what he's actually getting at. so you look at Isaiah chapter one, "I hate your feasts. oh, well, there we go. there we go i I hate your feasts." Yes, well, the thing is is that. He actually commanded them to be kept. But what is the point of your actually observing them? And in Isaiah 58, you actually get under the hood of that. Why are you observing a fast? Is it so that you are, as it says at the beginning part, shaking like a reed to basically put on a show? Or as Yeshua says, making your face long to make it obvious of what you're doing. And you are thinking that you're going to get great messages and communication from heaven just by, quote, showing up. This is the, doing the fast is like just showing up. Well, people say showing up is 98% of success. Well, (laughs) Yeah, only if you're just getting a participation trophy. But if this is for any sort of like, why are you here sort of thing? Because, you know, you've always been to some sort of event, and you can tell when someone just doesn't want to be there. You can just tell. And this is really what you're seeing throughout the book of Isaiah, where his people, his leaders of his people, are showing up there at God's house on his days. With the things that he said bring, but they're not there with them. Their hearts are somewhere else. And if you see also a kind of a look inside, kind of companion in a somewhat relatively same time period is the prophet Ezekiel. And he gives you an actual cutaway into what's going on inside the temple to show what's going on within the hearts of the priesthood and what is inside all kinds of detestable things. Everything that the Lord hates is actually inside the temple. And to to the point where you see the practices of the temple start to morph into the practices of the nations around. So, and these are the leaders. These are the ones that are supposed to be showing all the people what God is like. But no, what are they showing? God is like every other deity around. You can, you can cajole him, you can bribe him, and this and that, and on and on it goes. Just like all the other nations. Doesn't matter if you are showing up with your heart, just do what is required and that will be counted. But how do you compare that with Abraham? He trusted God. And it was reckoned as righteousness. Quite a bit different. Because you then should start getting some wheels moving in your head when you hear Paul talking about Abraham and his trust. His trust in God. And versus those leaders of Israel at the time period and Paul was writing to, they were teaching a different type of trust. And that's a big key part of a lot of Paul's letters and especially brought into the letter of Romans as to what is it that you're actually trusting in. Do you have the trust of Abraham into the one who leads? Or are you trusting just in the your own obedience to how you are following through with these things? So thus we get into the lessons that we have here we got the we saw it during during Yom Kippur about shofars and trumpets basically pay attention wake up heaven is talking hello are you actually going to respond and thus with the shofar being blasted here at Yom Kippur again that should tell you something significant there's very something significant is coming through, and a message of it, because what are some other things that happen around the time of Yom Tura and Yom Kippur? Happen seven-year cycles, fifty-year cycles, Jubilee, Shemitah, and those are all about the land resting. We're going back to freedom of slaves. There we go. Freedom of slaves. That's all about what that is proclaiming. Proclaim, listen up, free the slaves. Why? Because you were once a slave down there in Mitzrayim. So the one who freed you from the house of slavery and the house of bondage now wants you to have as much mercy on those in your charge as God had on you, Israel. So you get this message. And thus you could see with this call to humble yourself to stop, is somewhat similar to what the spiritual practice of Sukkot is like. Because one of the what is one of the um, observations, the the traditions, the practices of Sukkot is to do what for seven days? To dwell, dwell in these makeshift structures. And that is why? Just to go camping and burn some marshmallows? Or what, what, is, what is the point of that? To remember when you were out there out there in the wilderness in these makeshift structures no permanent home yes in these in these tents in which we groan that remember that we are in these temporary structures and then who are we dependent upon in this you know i did it all my way or we did it all his way yes so that is one of those key things to remember at this particular time period, that just like we are uh, having a spiritual practice of drawing out of us the things that we rely on, food, water, and then at Sukkot, living in a place that's temporary, um, not really well protected, also remembering who it is that we depend on. Uh, yes, uh Lirilla.
1: I thought it was interesting last year when I was in Israel during the time of Sukkot, and there was a person who was lecturing us on what we were going to be expecting when we got to Israel, and he talked about um, Yom Kippur. He talked about a couple of things. Uh, And I asked him, I said, well, why didn't you talk about Sukkot? And he said, I couldn't really figure it out. (laughs) He said, and you're a professor of Hebrew history. That's very interesting. (laughs) Just, Mm. I mean, how soon we forget. Yeah. And isn't that just unbelievable? Yeah. And that's why I feel that we are commanded to remember every Mm. year. Mm. Because otherwise we forget. And we think it's some silly tradition where you live in a tent for a week. Mm. And apparently burning marshmallows, but yeah. (laughs)
0: Yes, and it's also something that's got to be so important that you see that that's where actually the celebration of Hanukkah comes from. It was basically the second Sukkot for when the time when they could not celebrate Sukkot because the temple was not in service because a king had put it out of service by offering pagan things on top of it. So... They were only able to do it when it was put back into service. So thus, it talks about there in the Maccabees that they celebrated it like the days of Sukkot. So that's one of the key reasons why there's eight days of it. Um, One of the other things to take a look at here is about the lessons that we get. And we talked about this earlier about the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And Yochanan talked about this, the prophet Yochanan, John chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And take away the sins of the world, goats for Azazel. Now, moving on further, we looked at Romans, Romans, Hebrews 9 and 10. We looked at. Hebrews 9 and 10, and Hebrews, like the book of Isaiah, is one that is fraught with problems if you parachute in there with your concordance. Because one of the problems is is that it is a running thought from beginning to end, all the way to the end of it. Romans, a lot the same way. It is a, a building argument across its entire thing. Isaiah, very much similar across it, even as various, um, various theologians will try to split Isaiah up into different segments, but rather you see one consistent thought across all of it from beginning to end about the people that are in exile will be finding a home, will be brought back home and restored. So one of the things... We, when we look at Hebrews and chapters 9 and 10 is really building up to a crescendo that's been coming across several chapters. So we'll we'll just hit the high points of this. We, we do this around the time when we look at the passage there in Leviticus 16 and we compare this with the letter to Hebrews because really this letter helps us unpack a lot of what Yom Kippur is because this particular letter of Hebrews pack, unpacks a lot of what Yom Kippur is because for a lot of the time period, our, our brothers and sisters in the tribe of Yehuda, uh, for some of these things, Yom Kippur is a bit of a mystery. And thus, what also happens when you lose the temple is also a bit of a mystery. So some of the practices that come with the Yom Kippur service are, in a sense, looking to recreate some of what went on with the temple during the time when it was actually in progress. So when we're looking at the letter of Hebrews, a big hint that we get when we're looking through there is that it is about the high priest. So thus, letter the letter to Hebrews is really an explanation of the Day of Atonement. A lot of it is. So, it also talks about what happens when you have no temple. And you see hints of this throughout the letter to Hebrews. You know, it's about ready to pass away, because... The, the time period of when this was written is thought to have been get a, probably maybe within a decade, maybe a decade and a half of when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So if you look through the history of like either Josephus, et cetera, of what was happening in Israel up to the AD 70, um, the, <laughs> to borrow a passage from Prophet Daniel, the handwriting was on the wall of the walls of Jerusalem at that particular time period of what was coming. So, thus, when we look at the letter to Hebrews, uh, chapters one and two of Hebrews, it's talking about Yeshua as heaven's ultimate prophet and ministering spirit. And a key passage there: Hebrews two nine, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then going down further into verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. Since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that th- through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So, just as you see the testimony of the true prophets and spirit messengers was trustworthy, so too the testimony of Yeshua, the Son of God. That's a big vehicle, or you could say a rhetorical device in this, is the ancient um, Hebrew argument- argumentative um, device of Homer, or it means light and heavy. So, you see it usually framed, and Paul uses it a lot. You know, if this is this and you accept this, well, how much more is this? So, thus, that's a call of a Homer. It's the light. You accept something that, for in the argument, has lighter importance, but you still accept it. Well, if the similarities are also there on that which is even more important, well, then how much more is that significant? So you accept the lighter part of the argument, well, then you should accept the heavier part of the argument. And thus, when you go on in in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, uh, it really goes from chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 13. You see that Yeshua is heaven's ultimate deliverer and ultimate rest. And you keep seeing these quotations, enter my rest, enter my rest, enter my rest. And you see a key catchphrase there, Hebrews 3.1, consider Yeshua the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, when you get down into chapter four, some will see the mention there of Shabbat rest as being another setting aside. It's like, okay, well, we have Yeshua as the Shabbat rest. Well, then you don't need the Shabbat itself because now you've got the Shabbat rest. But again, call the Homer. You accept the Shabbat. Well, then how much more is the one who is able to bring you rest significant? So why do you keep Shabbat? Because Yeshua is our rest. He is the one who is the rest maker. And you go on even further, that in this discussion in Hebrews 3 and 4 is really bringing out these references to Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, which is a reflection on the historical event in Israel's history in the time of the Exodus. That's recorded there, in exodus 17 verses 1 through 7 they're talking about they're on so this is kind of like a multi-pronged leapfrog of hebrews 3 and 4 is referring a lot to psalm 95 which is referring to exodus 17. yes there are hyperlinks yes that's that's right lots of hyperlinks here yes which is which is great you know with these Uh, electronic Bibles, we in our generation have something that our forefathers never had to be able to just jump in between all of the references very, very easily and lay them all out right next to each other. I mean, talk about being blessed (laughs) in this generation. So, (laughs) we will be being accountable for uh, having these things at our fingertips and what do we actually do with them? Uh, Candy crush and worse. So, one of the things about these two word place names of Masa and Meribah, Meribah means place of strife and Masa means place of testing. The key punchline comes in Exodus 17.7, where they're asking in the midst of this miracle, is the Lord with us or not? Now, this is just after the crossing of the sea, and this is after. Uh, put thematically in in Exodus, this is after manna starts appearing. so is the Lord with us or not? We were delivered through the sea, and we get daily bread. Is the Lord with us or not? A question being asked to say, Well, look around you, do you see what the provisions are? Is the Lord with us or not so what you see then is a question then that happens now for this generation. They're facing the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem again, is what happens without a physical temple, a high priest daily sacrifices that question. It pops up again and again and again throughout this letter to Hebrews. So how do you respond? How do you, do we respond? Because we're even fu- further removed from it. I and mean, the people that this letter was written to probably had memory of the temple as it stood. We we just see the ruins of it. We visit the ruins of it. That's all we see. But they actually saw it in action. With Maybe they even saw services going on or even came in as pilgrims to celebrate the festivals. So as we go on there in Hebrews uh, four chapters fourth and into five, we see that Yeshua is heaven's ultimate priest, called like Aharon and Melchizedek. Now again, the whole thing about Melchizedek you see there in chapter five is homer People come up with all kinds of ideas about this and identity of this and that. It's it's simple. Melchizedek was a mysterious figure. He was entrusted and given a whole lot of authority by God. Abraham went to go see him. You know the the uh, greater blesses the lesser. How much more than is Yeshua, whose lineage? the people have a hard time trying to figure out. And you see that throughout the Gospels. So Melchizedek is there as an example. God puts people into place as priests that are outside of what he told Moshe and all of Israel to build. You know, he even had Elam. That's the strange prophet. I mean, that's a talk about a a double agent because it's like, like when when you're thinking about your billable time, Bilam, what part of his billable time is for the Lord versus all the other all the other um, shadim, all the other powers that he was also um, a seer for? Hmm. But it's like even the Lord spoke through Bilam which gets you back to the same thing that Yeshua told some people. It's like, you might be a way that people see the kingdom, but they may get in in spite of you, and you won't get it. So Bilam is kind of like that sort of a thing. He gave a great prophecy of what was going to come, prophecies even of the Mashiach. But he himself, he is a byword of don't do that even comes down into book of revelation as an example uh don't do that don't be like that and if you have that kind of uh, spirit going on within your congregation uh look out because you can see what's actually going to come from it so thus you see in Melchizedek. In the first place of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, or another way to put that is like unto Melchizedek, like Melchizedek was this person outside of the whole flow of Israel's priesthood, but yet designated to be a high priest of God to serve that purpose for Abraham's time. So then how much more is this Yeshua figure who came through Israel, the seed of the woman, as it threads through the various family trees down through Seth and down through Noach, down through Shem, all the way down, down through Yaakov, and now down through, you have the Mashiach comes through. Not a passing figure through history. How much more then? So then as we go on in Hebrews 5 and 6, key passages, don't walk away from God. That's going to be another aspect that we see in chapter 10 that was at the end of our reading. And at, in chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, God makes a promise. The oath of God is to save to take you where from where you were and deliver you to the land of rest, to rest. That's where you are being delivered. So moving on into Hebrews 7, we get into this chunk, which is really a heart into Day of Atonement. Chapter 7 through 10 of Hebrews really focus a lot on the Day of Atonement. But what leads up to that? especially 4 through 6, is about the high priest and about the promises of God. So Hebrews 7, Yeshua is heaven's high priest, but not connected to Aharon's line, not of the same family. And then again, going back to that call of the Homer discussion back in chapter 5 of Hebrews, that Yeshua is a high priest, but just like Melchizedek was a high priest, but not of the line of Aaron, not even during the time of the tabernacle. So thus what you see here is that the teaching is that Melchizedek is a pattern, a shadow of the coming Messiah, and hinted at by those Messianic prophecies that we have in psalm 110 verse 4 and also quoted again in which is quoted in hebrews 7 17 so moving on further if melchizedek was a king or a ruler of peace and righteousness how much more was yeshua again called the homer if he was a ruler of peace this prince of peace then how much more then and if abraham who God picked to be the father of the kingdom of priests, brought ties to Melchizedek, then how much more should the descendants of Avraham trust in God to bestow honor on Yeshua? So a key really to understanding this passage in Hebrews 7 through 10, in the Hebrews 7 verses 11 through 12, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise, according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aharon? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Another way to put that is, what is heaven's default setting? You know what default settings are. It's like if things get screwed up and you have to reboot, what's it get reset to? The default setting. It gets goes back to the default settings. So if the tabernacle in its operation gets rebooted or as we call that abomination of desolation, what is the default setting? Uh oh, we 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 have no we have no hope. There's no temple, there's no tabernacle, uh-oh, which is what the crisis was faced when the temple was destroyed multiple times. And also in AD 70, what do we do? How do we do the Yom Kippur service? But no temple, no priesthood, what do we do? What is the default setting that you go to from the history of God? It's that God is always in business and always has these ministers that will come in as needed. Always in operation. There, keep on keeping on. Yeah, there's no, there's no like closed sign on the, the house of God. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, Ben and I have got a comment or a question over there.
2: It's, it seems like in, in times past that so many times uh, people would get to the letter of the law I do always believe that for those who truly seek God, it's that he makes a provision for them to walk in the spirit of the law and to not to get caught up literally in the in the letter that kills, you know, but to love him with mm-hmm. all your heart, mind, and soul, you mm-hmm. know, if all that you are. I think that there's always a provision for that no matter where you are, no matter if everything's gone and everything's been destroyed, is that God will make that for those who seek him, who seek his face.
0: Yeah, indeed, and that's the the... Um, lesson that we have from like the prophet daniel It's continually open his window and pray toward a place that's destroyed by human eyes it's destroyed but what does the eye of heaven say that place that you think is totally gone it's only gone if the creator of heaven and earth says that it's gone he will restore it when he wants to And it's the same thing with us. You know, we may look at us, we age, we die, and people would say, well, he's gone. There's nothing more. But no, if you have the eye of the creator of heaven and earth looking at the situation, you're like, no. See you in a few. I will, I've got something in store to restore everything. So praise God. So that is, what a different point of view is. So that view of like, as we do as we pray toward and pray the Shema toward Yerushalayim, we're not praying towards a rubble pile. No, we're praying towards a promise. And a promise that is sure to be fulfilled. So, yes. And, when we see like perfection, as is talked about here, or <laughs> teleos, you may have heard that before. As we've been going through in our Roman study, we encountered it in the um, famous, yet sometimes infamous passage in Romans 10.4, where it says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And it's the same Greek verb in there, telos, which as we went through in our Roman study extensively, it's saying, where does this thing point? What is the goal of it? The same word is used throughout um, Greek literature the same time period saying, talking about Greek law, what is the point of it? Where is it headed? Where is it actually accomplishing? Because we all buckle under laws that have no point. And you're like, what on earth is this on the books for? Who um, <laughs> bribed whom to get this onto the law books, or whatever, to get this into place? Laws with no purpose, but this Telos is about a purpose, a direction where this is headed. So, in that sense, for the Messiah is the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, or the direction, or the The goal of the law is how you'll see it in some margin translations of it. So, a good definition could be the condition in which men are acceptable to God is what perfection is. But how are you made acceptable to God? Ding, ding, ding. The Mashiach is how you are made acceptable to God. Because if you were to compare yourself to God's instructions otherwise, uh oh. (laughs) Uh oh. So, as we continue on here, looking at this section of Hebrews 4 through 10, really, and even 7 through 10, the goal of the tabernacle in the temple was to bring people close to God. And that you see in. King Solomon's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that's what he prayed for, especially for the nations, that the nations would come to this house and that they would be drawn close to you. So that was the goal of the temple and the tabernacle was to bring people closer to God. And we saw that when we were going through the book of Leviticus that God said, build this structure so the people build the structure. God moves in, throws everybody out. And that's how Exodus ends. Uh-oh. But then as we go through Leviticus, we see there is a way into the Holy of Holies. Wow, that should sound familiar. Yes. Because we just read about that, not only in Leviticus, but also in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. So yes, there is a way into the Holy of Holies. Always has been there. yes so thus you can see that the human priesthood was incomplete because it couldn't fully bridge the gap between mankind and god and truly it never was that whole goal yes it was always a pattern or a type of the things happening in heaven so, yes, uh, Larry, go ahead, please. Yeah, but it wasn't a mere shadow. Not a mirror by it any means. It was a proof that the reality existed because that's the only thing that casts a shadow. Indeed. Indeed. It's, it's like not mirror like uh, any sort of monument that you have to an event, or we might have a statue to some sort of historical figure. So, that helps give us a visual reminder of a historical reality hey, this monument marks something happened here. And when we go there, we can say, well, we read about it in a book, but here then you've got some sort of a monument for it. And even more significant of the monument is if it involves something from the actual event that was there. When you like go to Jerusalem and you're actually seeing the actual stones of the temple as it was built, the second temple, Yes, that is a memorial for that which actually was happening there. And like when they've dug up recently up on Mount Ebal, those actual letters of curses in there. So you're saying that that was the mountain of cursing and we've dug up actual letters of cursing on that particular mountain. So you're like you have... These memorials. Uh, yes, Ben and I have these memorials that point us to something that actually happened.
2: Yes. yes. Uh, it just brought the thought about you know, when Christ said you know, to the Pharisees that destroy this temple. Yes. And they absolutely missed the point that he was the substance. Everything that had been pointing to him, to the fulfillment, he was. And how basically they were thinking, well, it took us all these years to build this temple. But he was talking that him being the temple. Mm. And I just found that uh, to be found because at the end of the thousand-year reign with him is the heavenly new Jerusalem. Like, we're pilgrims, and we're all sojourning in this life, and, and we look forward to the promises. Like, Abraham, Like we don't see. We haven't seen the heavenly new Jerusalem yet, but we look forward to it. And we put our hope in, in, Christ, in Christ, you know, our beloved Messiah, knowing that he'll make all things new and that basically we look forward to that day and we hold to his promises.
0: Mm, Indeed. So that's like what the Apostle Peter talks about, that we're all like living stones built up into the house of God. Indeed. So yes, and so we can also see that the law was only intended to point out when people veer away from God's laws, not to make one not to make mankind acceptable to God, which is a big focus of what we've gone through in like Psalm 51, where it's talking about offerings that you did not desire, but what? A contrite heart. Now, did he require them? Yes. But is that where it all ends? You just bring it up, dump it in there? Okay, check that off your list, and then get on with life. No. It's the contrite heart behind it, which is where you see, like in Isaiah 1, and the passages we've looked at so far, where you can see heaven is not pleased by just showing up. Heaven isn't pleased when we just kind of just show up. Because heaven knows our heart. Who are we fooling if we just show up? Heaven knows exactly what's going on within, inside of us at any given time period. And so as you see, Hebrews 7 closing out, better than an Aharonic high priest, Yeshua doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself. He has no sin to be covered. Rather, Yeshua covers the sin, transgression, and iniquity of the people of God. So then we get into Hebrews chapter 8. It's the abomination of desolation all over again. And this chapter really is expounding upon the first time when Israel rebelled, the Holy of Holies was taken away, and when they continued to rebel, the entire temple was taken away. And that's what Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 13 really cover, especially in the phrase, Hebrews 8, 1, Now, the main point of what we were saying is this, and this should say, okay, pay attention. This is what the punchline is here. Like when we talk about with parables, a lot of people get wrapped up in the details, but the punchline of the parable is the most important thing to understand. And often it's near the end of the parable. So, Really, when you're looking at one of the parables in the Gospels, you should start at the end, the punchline, and then work backward to say, are your observations of the various points along the way really getting it? And thankfully, you have got a parable like the parable of the sower, which is just spelled out in so much detail as to what it means, what each of the elements mean, etc., that you really have not a lot of guessing that goes into What the point of that is? Some of the other parables, the punchline is really all you get to give you a a place and a peg to put your hat on. So, what is the main point of what we're getting at? The point is that Yeshua, as the ultimate high priest of God, not only dwells in the holy of holies of the original tabernacle, throne room of God, but sits at the right hand of the Father, and that's where. The letter of Hebrews started with the first few verses, three through four, said the same thing. And that really teaches us that all of the Torah really speaks about Yeshua. And in remembering this day, this day of atonement, we see Yeshua as the high priest, the goat that was slain and the goat that was cast away. And there have been some teachings, I even grew up with one, that, that there was... Two roles, the, the, the two goats at atonement, those were two roles, one of which was the adversary. And you're like, I never really thought that was great, but didn't really have any good explanation for it until I actually went back and read <laughs> the passage there in Leviticus 16. And then you're like, wait a minute, the lot could have gone to either one of those goats, they both had to be blameless it could have gone either way to either of them. It wasn't like, okay, that's the bad goat. All right, get rid of it. So, yeah, the evil goat. Just just see the evil goat, bad goat, get rid of it. So then we get down to the passage we just read here today, where Yeshua is carrying away our sin. And these two chapters really reassure us that the evidence against us is gone, thanks to the continual superior priesthood and the one-time offering of the son of god that's why these quotations from the new covenant prophecy back in jeremiah 31 that we read earlier today why they keep showing up in this passage why do they keep showing up it's really to emphasize this taking away iniquity the iniquity is taken away and remembered no more So that's, um, and this goes into a longer discussion, but one of the the things you might notice in your Bible translation when it talks about, and the first covenant, you might see that covenant in your particular translation is italicized. That's because the word is not there, it just says first. If the first, if the first, if the first. People just assume you're talking about the covenant, which includes, they take that, the Mosaic covenant, everything at Sinai, it's done away with. Rather than what you see talked about is the place where priests work. The first priesthood, they're unemployed when their place of work goes away. Well, I'm going to say not totally unemployed, they're, probably go to their default role which is where you see also in the torah about they are to be teachers also so that's the remaining job because their main job of serving in the house of god that's uh taken out of the way there's no place for them to work anymore in that particular role yes uh christine yes go ahead please
1: so when they were exiled in Babylon, mm. they, there was a group of what they called the mighty men, maybe. I might be wrong. The wise men, the mighty men, where they came up with the service of the heart, mm. where they took the prayers that used to be sacrificed mm. at the tabernacle and put them in what, was, what is now considered the Hebrew prayers that they go to the synagogue and mm-hmm. read, the different prayers. So, would that be, was that, does that relate to what you're talking about, that maybe they were out of a job, so that while they're in Babylon, they're trying to create, recreate Mm. what they could do, and they called it service of the heart, for those, maybe a remnant that was still wanting to do that. Yeah, I mean,
0: that's where we get the whole synagogue system came out of the Babylonian exile, because... That's like, you, you might wonder why so many elements of the synagogue service and has gone over into the church service um, looks a lot like elements of the tabernacle, ark, altar, you know, things like that. That's by there, that's no coincidence that those elements are there because they are, in a sense, kind of bringing and keeping it alive of what was happening there in the tabernacle. But it's like you're not totally reproducing it. Although when you look back historically, there was actual reproductions like a second temple down in Alexandria, down in Egypt. They've actually uh, seen the excavation work on that, (laughs) which is kind of interesting. So there were like additional temples that people did. Now, You could say, well, now you're dealing with some sort of cognitive dissonance because there is the word says there's one place where he would set his name. So you have those historical curiosities that would would come into that play. And you also see they've dug up uh, archaeologically where they had um, little creches that they had made sort of sort of like temple-like and they would have them in their homes and some of them even started to go off into kind of syncretism and having these crushes which were temple-like things in their homes that were also um, paying homage to other deities yes so thus that's where you see some archaeologists will then start thinking hey well Israel wasn't as monotheistic as we thought they were or what they claimed to be. They were just as like everybody else. But what do we actually see from the historical records that we have in the historical writings that are in the Bible? Is that pretty soon after they get into the land, what happens? It They just start, as we say, devolving. <laughs> Their spirituality started devolving uh, quite Quite rapidly. Instead of standing out, they blended in. Indeed. Yes. So that's one of the key things that we get out of this particular passage in Hebrews 9 through 10 is that we have a high priest who carries away our past. Yes, indeed. Thank you, indeed. And that perfection. Of the one who's bringing the offering of the tabernacle involves clearing the conscience of a record of wrongdoing, both in memory and inclination. That's what we talk about sprinkling your conscience there in Hebrews 10, verses 1 and 2. So, what you see then is really the fulfillment of the new covenant prophecy where he will remember them no more. So, then, what should be the impact of the Spirit upon us, that we won't remember them anymore, that we will trust that just, here we go, again. that just as God has forgiven, so we must forgive ourselves. Let those things go, to trust that God has actually forgotten them. So, That is one of the the great lessons that we get from Yom Kippur. And again, there's a quotation here in Hebrews chapter 10 from Psalm 40 about the cleansing the person from the inside. So hopefully we'll see through all this that one of the great lessons that we get of Yom Kippur is this great sense of hope and also of where our true cleansing comes from. We open up our hearts to say, "God cleanse us. Wash us, cleanse us with hyssop. Cleanse us, wash it away. We heap. Our sins, transgressions and iniquities upon him, and he carries those away via the Messiah and remembers those no more. So then the tradition of you know wearing white in this time of year, it's in a sense of like not how great we are. But really, it should be in a sense of how great he is that as for as messed up as we have been, that he can look at us and see us as white as snow. Though our skin sins were as scarlet, yet he made them white as snow. Amen, indeed. All right, so that brings us to the end of this discussion here. Any other thoughts or questions before we close out this section? Uh, yes, Rose, and then Larry.
1: Uh, an observation. Um, as the priests sprinkled blood in the Holy of Holies seven times, mm-hmm. Christ
0: also shed his blood seven times. Bleeding, Seven yes. places. Mm. Indeed. Interesting. Yes, uh, Larry. Trying to find the place where it says what? Where it said, uh, if if something changes, then there must of necessity be
2: a change in the priesthood. Right.
0: right. That's that's what we just were just reading here. And, were we? Did uh, I miss it while you were reading? Yeah, we had one of the passages that we had take, taken a look at, and that's why we were we're saying the point is that that basically, if the place where they were there where they were employed, where they were working, if that's out of commission then there's got to be some sort of a change. But really what you see is there has always been a default with God's dealings with mankind. And that is where the example of Melchizedek is, that he will always have a minister working and interceding, always working, kind of like what Melchizedek did. But much, much more than the Son of God as that mediator always working that being the the default position uh yes uh, ben and i if you have a comment or a question over there
2: uh i just i found it uh an interesting line of thought that uh, while the israelites were in uh, babylon and they had bent uh, the uh to the statue um, it seems as though it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel mm-hmm. who didn't. And what I found interesting was is that you said there's always, you know, one. There's always going to be. In, well, they were thrown into the, into the furnace. And, you know, mm-hmm. they said, you know, our God can deliver us or not. And there was the fourth, like a son of man. You know, um, I just find it interesting that for those who don't bend the knee, who basically continue to search their God and to seek His ways and to abide in Him um, is that He always makes away a way of provision. I just, mm. I mean, even in the furnace, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, He made that provision. I mean, He there He was. I mean, I guess being their what deliverer, uh, setting them free, being their mediator. I mean, I mean, I, I that's what I see.
0: Wow! Yeah, indeed. Uh, Yes, Larry, have a comment or a question back there. Dispensationalists use that. Dispensationalists
2: use. Dispensationalists use that. uh, There must be a change in order to prove that uh, the uh, old was old was done away with. Ah.
0: What I was trying to compare. Yeah. So they they uh, think that. The old must be done away with, and so the new must come in. Yeah, so that's kind of the the idea of you could say linear approach to God's uh, covenants and deals with mankind, rather than um, the idea of layered covenants that a lot of them are in operation all at the same time. Yeah, plan Plan B, or you you just have them that are that are. Already operating, so if one is not operating, then it just spills over to the one that is operating so yeah yes uh Ben and I you have a comment or a question yes, a question about the old wineskins and the new wineskins
2: yeah and how that pertains to um, is there any practical application between the old covenant and the new covenant I, I'm just wondering is you know just because Christ was a fulfillment Everything that was leading up uh, to his arrival, and then the fulfillment of how he fulfilled the law. Mm -hmm. I just am curious: is there well
0: one of the one of the ways that you can you can take a look at that? uh, You could say a functional parable is that the skins are more about the people involved than they are about what is being um, communicated, because that was one of the. If you see in the context, it was about the. Um, people, if they were not able to accept what was being put into them, they would uh <laughs> burst yes, uh, see Sam and then uh, Estelle
2: yeah, I, I think uh, what we you know people tend to forget sometimes is to look in the scripture when God said, "This is a statue for you forever yeah. so when he said it is forever, yeah. so that means it can be changed, it can be broken, it doesn 't matter. Well, you know how? Which lenses are you looking at it? It said it is forever.
0: You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info.